This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. It is good that we're together. It's good that we open our Bibles together. And so if you have your Bible, would you open it to Luke 23? Luke chapter 23, we are zooming through the Bible in this series we are calling Equipped, where we are learning to read and apply the whole Bible by pairing Bible study skills along with big, important chapters of the Bible. And today we get one of the most, if not the most important thing that happens in all the Bible. And so would you join me in the room? Would you join me online in a word of prayer? God, we thank you that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you do that through dying on the cross, turning your wrath away from us and instead looking upon us with favor. May we celebrate the good news, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you put an end to death through his decisive work this morning. Amen. Do you have a favorite word? I do. Really, I do. I have a favorite word. I've met people who have favorite words like me. Some of your favorite words might be fun to say. You just like them because they're fun. I like the word kerfuffle. It's a fun word to say. Say it with me. Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle, uh, if you don't know that word, it's like a, a little spat or a dust up or maybe like a, a small disturbance, like a little, little argument that maybe even gets a little like when kids get a little rowdy. It's a kerfuffle. Uh, I like that word. There are words that people have that are their favorite words that have a fun meaning. Uh, I used to like, I mean, I guess I still do like the word onomatopoeia. That's a fun word. It's a fun word to say. It also has a fun meaning. And onomatopoeia is a word that describes, based on the, how the word sounds, it describes the word. So words like gurgle are onomatopoeias or sizzle. Sizzle kind of sounds like the sound of sizzling. That's an onomatopoeia. I like that word. But I have uh, a different favorite word. I like the word because it's fun to say. But more than that, I like it because of what it means. In fact, I think that this word is the most important and has the best meaning of any word in the world. So are you ready for this? My favorite word in all the world is propitiation. You say that one with me. Propitiation. Here's what it means. Through propitiation, we are moved from being at enmity or separation with God to having him look upon us with favor. Said another way, propitiation means that we go from being the subject of God's wrath to being the recipients of his grace. And so you can see, because propitiation is a fun word to say, but it's also the most important word idea in the whole world. The simplest way, if you just want to know what, what simply does propitiation mean, it describes how we are saved from sin 
and how we are given new life in God. All wrapped up in this one word. Last week, we talked about the new birth. In order to escape death and have everlasting life, we must be born again. And the only way that that happens, the only way to be born again, there's not deeds, there's not penance, there's not giving of wealth. The only way to be born again is by looking to Jesus. And this week what I want to do is come after that and tell you the best way that I can exactly how that happens. How does looking to Jesus defeat death and give life? You know, I wondered for a long time, I'm a process guy, and I'm a logical thinker, and I'm kind of a skeptic by nature. And so for a long time, I wondered, even as a Christian, even after I became a Christian, how is it that God's wrath for sin can be satisfied, and how is it possible that I can receive new life based on the death of one person 2,000 years ago. How, how can that be effectual for me today? He's just one person. How can he give new life to hundreds of millions, billions of people, and how can that defeat death? Have you ever asked that question? Well, the answer is propitiation. It's only in the cross of Jesus Christ that God can turn away his anger and give favor. And so I want to tell you this morning from two places in Scripture, how, that's the question we're asking, how is the death of Jesus able to defeat all other death and give life? So the main place will be is Luke 23, where Jesus is crucified on the cross And the second place I'm going to take you is Romans chapter 3. I really wanted to work Romans into this series. There just wasn't enough weeks. And so there's an old pastor's trick. I'm just going to slide it right into this message. Because Romans 3 is really helpful in understanding Jesus' death on the cross. Have you ever, uh, think of it this way, have you ever watched a movie where you got the DVD, and they had on the DVD commentary with the director or some of the actors or the producer. So you could watch the movie, and it had the movie and the sound and everything, but over certain scenes, certain pivotal parts of the movie, the director would talk about how they shot that scene or what was happening or how we directed the actors or something like that in the scene. And that's a little bit what Romans 3 is like. We're going to read Romans 3 a little bit like commentary on the death of Jesus in Luke 23. It's going to really help us to understand all the particulars, all the nuances, all the little things happening, why Romans 23 is able to do what Roman, or why Luke 23 is able to do what Romans 3 says it can. So it's like seeing the death of Jesus on the cross with the commentary running, explaining it while it's happening. And the other reason it makes sense to do this is because the Bible study skill that we are working on this morning as part of this series is something called redemptive context. Redemptive context. Uh, We can do this a little bit by looking, I'm going to read a little bit from Isaiah 53 as well. So redemptive context means, 
<coughs> excuse me, seeing the whole Bible, the whole Bible as one story of God's plan to redeem. You know what context is? It's what surrounds it. It's what informs it. It's what gives uh, something, kind of roots and grounds something around something else. So the whole story of the Bible is God's plan to redeem. And because the death and resurrection of Jesus are the decisive works of that plan, the whole Bible, in one way or another, is really a book about the cross. So when we read the Old Testament we can look at how this is pointing and leading to a need for the cross. And we can see the cross, and after the cross, even in the New Testament, as the church is built and letters are written and things are talked about in the future, we can see what are the implications of the cross on all the rest that comes after it. How has the cross changed the last 2,000 years? So we're looking at redemptive context. How do we read the whole Bible as a celebration of the cross. Well, let's start doing that in Luke 23, 32. Luke 23, starting at verse 32. Prior to this, there's a group that's making a a slow procession up to a, a crucifixion place. There's a man named Simon who was pulled out of the crowd by Roman soldiers, and he was made to carry the cross that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be nailed to. And when they reached this place, they laid the cross down. They would have laid Jesus' body, who was already tired and bleeding from beatings. They would have laid him down on the cross, laying on the ground, and they would have stretched out his arms. And on either side, they would have taken a hammer and driven a nail through kind of his wrist. If you can feel on your own hand or on your own arm, there's a couple of bones in there, and then there's a bunch of tendons in the middle. They would have driven the nail through, basically just inside of the wrist, through those tendons, so that he would be suspended there on the cross, and then they would lift up the cross, about four guys it took, they would lift up the cross, they would set it in a hole, and then they would take one large nail, and they would, they would nail both feet together, similarly to the wrists, through the ankles. And when you are crucified, being nailed through tendons isn't what kills you. You suffocate to death. It's death by asphyxiation because what happens when you are, uh, when you slouch down the airways or the, the passageways that bring air to your lungs are constricted so you can't breathe. So what you have to do is open up your airways and you do that by pushing yourself up with your legs, kind of pushing against that nail that's through your ankles and pulling yourself up through the nails that are that are through your wrists, and you pull yourself up to get breath, but it's so excruciatingly painful that once you take a breath, you slouch down. Oftentimes, guys would pass out doing this, but you slouch down. Again, your airways are constricted, and so in a few more seconds, you have to start the process all over again until eventually your body cannot pull itself up to breathe anymore. That's what's happening to Jesus. And it's what's happening to a couple other men who are next to him. So Luke 23, starting at verse 32. Two others who were criminals 
were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now remember, he's with criminals. That'll be important in a minute. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Remember that they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Now there were many people who saw the execution, but who had no idea what they were really witnessing. All they saw was a man who was broken and brutalized being killed. They thought what they were watching even made sense to a certain degree. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to bring with him the kingdom of God. But how could that possibly be, they reasoned. They thought, for for Jesus was defeated. This can't possibly be God's champion. It can't possibly be the Redeemer. Nobody would ever die in humiliation that is one who's come as king. And that's why... As they looked on, it's what they thought. But that was only because they weren't paying attention. This is where we can look back and we can do some work at looking at the Bible as one story of redemption. Listen to how the words of Luke 23 are interpreted when we read the words of Isaiah 53. This is prophecy, 600-year-old prophecy about how the Messiah would come. Messiah means promised one or chosen one or sent one of God. If people were truly paying attention, they would have seen exactly that this is what God would have been planning. But they weren't looking at it this way. So just listen to Isaiah 53 read in light of what we just read. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Remember, they were jeering at him. How could his, you, you're not from God. You're defeated and afflicted. But he was pierced. Remember the nails. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. Means to, again, jeer at. That brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You hear this. This is exactly what's happening in Luke 23. Here's a few more. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Verse 7, his grave was with the wicked, even though he had done no wrong. Remember that phrase, he had done no wrong, but his grave's with the wicked. Who's he being crucified with? Criminals. 
And in just a second, you'll realize that you'll, you'll learn from Luke 23 that the criminals deserved to be there. His portion was divided among many, verse 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors, again with criminals. But remember how I said, remember that his, his few worldly possessions were divided among his executioners. Unexpected as it was and hard as it may be for some to believe, this is exactly how God said the Messiah would come and die. Among transgressors, though he had done no wrong, bearing chastisement, said to be smitten by God, deserted by his closest friends. Yet this is how God said death would be vanquished. So again, the question we're pursuing, how is that possible? How does that happen? Let's go back to Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him again. Remember chastisement saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked his friend, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, these men, committed their crimes. For we are deserving of the reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this is one of those exchanges where it almost seems small, kind of almost matter of fact. Jesus did this all the time, but of course this would happen on the cross too. It's one of those exchanges that's brief, but we learn so much. Now first, the first thing we learn here is that one criminal says to the other, Jesus has done nothing wrong. How did he know that? How did he know that? Later in this, in fact, we're just going to see it in verse 47, it says in verse 47, Now when a Roman centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. How do the criminals know? How does the Roman guard know that Jesus was innocent just by looking at him die on a cross? I thought about that question a lot. And I can only speculate so there's a little alarm going off. This is just your pastor speculating for a minute. But I think I have an idea about how people could look at the way Jesus died and know that he didn't deserve to die. And here, here it goes. I can only conclude this. This is, this is my, my best conclusion. Every person in the world who has ever suffered, suffered because in some way they, we, deserved to. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that happens happens to us in response to something we've done that's bad. I don't mean karma. I mean the doctrine of original sin. 
We are descendants of people who've chosen sin and that sin has broken the world and we too are guilty of sin ourselves. We are those who have lied, who have cheated. We are those who have looked upon others with malice in our heart. We get angry. We can't even do a few of the Ten Commandments, the most basic of moral statutes. We can't do those things. We put other things before God. We all, to some degree, deserve our suffering because we have all participated in sin and we are the descendants of sinners. So if there's something about the way that we suffer that's common to everybody, it makes sense. We all suffer because we're all under sin. In other words, we suffer because we're not perfect. But that wasn't Jesus. He didn't deserve to suffer because he was perfect. He didn't get angry in sin. He didn't look upon another with lust in his heart. He didn't put anything before God. He never lied. He didn't deserve to suffer. And so I can only speculate that of all the suffering these men have seen, and listen, I think these criminals, because oftentimes it is the case, criminals have seen hardship and suffering in the world. There's some historical speculation that these men may have been part of a gang that Barabbas was a part of, the man who was kind of exchanged for Jesus. But we couldn't know they at least ran with each other. They were in crime and league with each other. They had probably seen a hard life. The Roman centurion who recognized his innocence, typically Roman centurions would come having already spent time in the forward infantry of the Roman army, and the Roman army was a brutal, brutal bunch. He had seen suffering. It's not much, it's not a very big leap to think that this man had seen much, much death and probably caused it himself. He'd seen much suffering. These criminals had seen much suffering. The onlookers, they did this all the time. This wasn't the first time they crucified somebody publicly. They did this all the time. You could go see a crucifixion. But the people that are there saw in Jesus a different kind of suffering than they had ever seen before. And in that, they conclude that this man must have been innocent. There must have been something that was so different about the way that Jesus suffered. And I think it was because everybody else suffers like somebody who to one degree or another deserves it. Jesus is the only one who's ever suffered that has not deserved it. So that's the first thing we learn, is Jesus suffered differently. Second thing, and this is a brief exchange, is that anyone can come to Jesus and they can do it right now. The man says, the criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says that will happen today. The invitation to Jesus, from Jesus to come, is not one to come at some point in the future. It's not one that's reserved for the best. This was a man who was guilty of crime, crime so severe it was punishable by death. And purely based on his affirmation of faith, Jesus invites him to come and grants him salvation right now. Right in that moment. 
What do we know about this man? All we know, all we know is that he was deserving of death. He was a wicked man. He ran with a bad crowd. Yet he asks for mercy, and Jesus gives it to him right away on that very day. Jesus still does this. He still grants mercy today. You do not have to wait any longer to come to him, and you do not have to believe anymore that he won't grant you mercy and grant him part, grant you to be part of his kingdom today. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, and here it is, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. It's a sign of sorrow and anguish and and torment in their minds. Again, they knew something was different. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So why these reactions? What was God displaying in this spectacle that even if all the people did not believe, I don't think everybody became a Christian right after this that was there, but it profoundly impacted them. What was happening here on the cross that made such a difference that not only the physical properties of the world were changed, the sun going away in the middle of the day, this giant curtain being torn in two, but people going away having seen something that they've never seen before in their lives. And that's where we need to flip over to Romans 3. That's where we need the commentary to show us exactly what's happening here on the cross. So the question that Romans 3 is answering is why isn't the law of God sufficient to save? The law is what God gave Moses. Generally, this is what the law is. What God gave Moses when he called the people out of Egypt and formed them as a community in the Old Testament, and he gave them a way of interacting with each other. He gave them a way of worshiping. He gave them a way of identifying sin and making atonement for it. And so he, he makes them a covenant community with practices particular to their people. But we learn that the law isn't sufficient to save anybody. There was provision made for the atoning of sin, but it wasn't forever. So said another way, the problem that the law we learn in the Old Testament points out is that it can help, but it can't save And that's where we pick it up in Romans 3. The law can help, but it can't save, so we need something more. We need something greater. And I'll pick it up in verse 21. This is why the cross is necessary. For all the people who think, I'm a good person, why isn't that enough for God? I'm kind, I'm charitable, I'm generous. I'm servant-hearted. Why isn't that enough for God? 
or for all the people who are skeptical about asking how the death of a man 2,000 years ago can make any difference for anybody today. This is for you. Or, especially, this is for anybody who thinks that they are kind of the opposite of those things. If you think you are unlovable, if you think that you are unredeemable or unsavable or unbearable, this is especially for you. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That means, again, there is something greater than the law, something higher than the law. The problem is the law that can't save, it can only condemn. If we are to be saved, we need something more than the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Because this begins to answer the question, why Jesus' death 2,000 years ago? This is the first reason that the death of Jesus is effectual and necessary for everybody. Remember, there was something different about the way that Jesus died. That's because, and here's the, here's the real behind-the-scenes commentary. He's the only person who has ever lived who this clause that we just read doesn't apply to. Everyone else has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many people find it offensive when they're told that they are a sinner, when they're told that they're not a good person. But that's why I like this verse It doesn't call out certain people. It doesn't call out certain sins. It doesn't make gradients. I don't have to argue about kind of good versus bad or better or versus worse or moral versus immoral. We're talking about sin and the measure of sin is anything that falls short of the glory of God. Now, I've never met anybody who thinks they're perfect. I met a lot of people who think that they're good and so pleasing to God. I met a lot of people who think that they're moral and so better than other people. But everybody knows that they're not perfect. And this makes it easy. We're not looking for good or moral or usually ethical. We're looking for perfection. Because God is perfect And the only way to be in his presence is to be perfect like he is. And this makes it easy because nobody's there. None of you are perfect and neither am I. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the solution. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, really quick, I need to make a theological and precise clarification of what these verses are saying so that you are not misled. In verse 24, when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that could read that everybody sins and everybody's justified by God. Folks, that's not true. What this means, and as you read farther, it's clear. It does not mean that everybody in the whole world is justified. It means that everybody can be justified if 
they place their faith in Jesus Christ for redemption. So again, justification is another word for saying saved. Again, it means that for any person to be justified, the only way that's going to work is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then the next verse tells us why. So Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a, there's my word, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So now we're going to look, this is what is happening on the cross. The next few verses are what are happening on the cross. When Jesus died, he turned the wrath, remember what propitiation means, he turned the wrath of God away from us and allowed God to look upon us with favor because in making atonement for sin, Jesus traded the favor that God looked upon him with, and instead Jesus took his wrath. This is the exchange that takes place on the cross. Jesus goes from being innocent and righteous to bearing the sins of humanity and everybody who believes on him has their sins, your sins taken away, and you receive the righteousness of Jesus. In order for God to save, two things have to happen. Propitiation captures them both. Sin has to be dealt with, and righteousness needs to be put on. God's holy, and sin is deep. So to the question of why can't God just forgive sin, 